The following sermon by Nelson Atwood was recorded at Noble Park Evangelical Baptist Church. For more information, please visit their website at www.noblebaptist.org.au That's www.noblebaptist.org.au um, today's Bible reading is from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 to 8. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4 to 8. But God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heaven, heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Years and years and years ago, when I was a young man at uh, 16th Avenue Gospel Chapel in downtown Vancouver, I had a group of friends and they were as musical as you could imagine. And uh, they came on every Sunday night in our very conservative brethren church, and they played their guitars and, and sang songs, and I just I wanted to be a part of that group. And so I practiced till my fingers bled, and, and I tried to get the chords figured out, and I'd show up, and every once in a while I'd break a string, and I, I couldn't play. And they'd say, oh, don't worry, Nelson. It's no big deal that you can't. We'll manage without you. And, I, and it used to grieve me because I so badly wanted to be a part of that. And I thought, why is God not letting me play chords and play guitar? And I could play the same chords on the same guitar in the same rhythm that my friend Russ could play. And his sounded like beautiful music and mine sounded like somebody was torturing a cat, right? It was terrible. And I realized as I got older that... God gives different ones of us different abilities to serve the Lord. And one day an older brother came to me and he said, You know, Nels, uh, the greatest ability that you have to serve the Lord is not playing guitar, especially in your case, it's not playing guitar. <laughs> but he said the greatest ability that anybody can have to serve the Lord is not musical, it's not oratory, it's not leadership, it's what you just said. It's availability. And the reality is that God is looking for people who are willing to serve the Lord. And it's not about having a degree in music. Praise the Lord for that. It's not about having great flying fingers on a violin. It's about a heart that wants to love and serve the Lord with all their ability. Alright. Take your Bibles and just stick your finger in Ephesians chapter there and flip over to John chapter 11. Plan for the next couple of weeks in the preaching in this church is this. Uh, next Sunday, September 3rd, is Father's Day, and so we're going to use that day as an opportunity to bring a message on marriage and what is the biblical view of marriage, and particularly as it relates to husbands and fathers. That will be next Sunday morning. The following on, as you know, is Simon Pyatt here. And then on September 17th, we'll continue with Ephesians. But I want to read this morning as to tie in together with our study in the book of Ephesians, this story in the book of John, chapter 11. I want to read uh, verses 1 to 44 of John, chapter 11. It's a story you well know, but it ties beautifully with what we want to say in Ephesians 2. says, Now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And so the sisters sent word to him, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard this, he said, The sickness is not to end in death, but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. 
Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that he was sick, he then stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he was speaking of literal sleep. So Jesus then said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go so that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. And Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to her, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the Son of God, even he who comes into the world. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, The teacher is here and is calling for you. When she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up quickly and went out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Therefore, when Mary came where Jesus was, she saw him and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, Where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews were saying, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? So Jesus again, being deeply moved within, came to the tomb Now it was a cave, and a stone was lying against it. And Jesus said, Remove the stone. Martha said, The sister, sorry, Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not say to you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. Then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you also hear me, but because of the people standing around, I said it so that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. The man who died came forth, bound hand and foot with wrappings, and his face was wrapped around with a dark cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done believed in him. And some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. Now verse, the first two verses of chapter 12. It says, Jesus therefore six days before the Passover came to Bethany where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they made him a supper there, and Martha was serving. But Lazarus was one of those reclining at the table with him. Let's ask for God's blessing, shall we? Loving Father, we give you thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And Father, we thank you so much this morning that he came to make dead people live. Came to suffer and die that we would have life and have it more abundantly. That we would know what it is to be reconciled to you. To have sins forgiven, to have forgiveness, to have peace, to have joy in the Lord. And Father, we thank you for these things. We ask, O God, that you would open our eyes this morning to behold wonderful things in your word. That you would revive us again according to your word. You would strengthen us individually and as a church according to your word. And Father, we seek your blessing and your help. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the things I love very much is restoring old things. Uh, when I was a carpenter living in Victoria, British Columbia, my first job over there when I moved there in 1999 was to take a 100-year-old Victorian mansion and we were taking it all apart and keeping the structure and rebuilding and restoring this beautiful old mansion back to what it was way back when it was first built almost 100 years ago. We finished the work almost a hundred years exactly to when it had been finished in its original building. And that old building had these beautiful old moldings and doors and, and great big uh, woodwork pieces in it. And nobody made woodwork like that anymore. So part of my job was to take and grind special cutter heads to put on our molding machine to reproduce and rebuild all these beautiful moldings all over the inside of this house. We laid beautiful woodwork floors and we restored it back to its original 1900 situation. And no matter how hard we worked on that project, we could not create a brand new building. It was still a hundred years old, even though it was restored. A few years later, I got to work on a boat called the Kanim. I was showing Daryl pictures of this beautiful old uh, 1920s built. It was a double timber planked, uh, about a hundred foot long yacht that was built to, to cruise up and down the inside passage in the southeastern uh, states of the United States. And they had moved it around to our shop in on uh, Vancouver Island. And we went inside this thing and tore all the pieces of it out. And we rebuilt it, not to the same original design, but to match in woodwork and colors and style and design what it would have looked like in the Roaring Twenties. Beautiful teak work and mahogany and all kinds of stuff. We took the engine parts out and we revamped them all. We put in bow thrusters so they didn't think it could move and maneuver easily. And when we were finished... One of the most, one of the coolest things, I think Cameron was in the stroller and Brady was a tiny baby. And we went out on a harbor in a sunset cruise. They invited all the workers in the boatyard to bring their families down. And we cruised out into the sunset on this beautiful old yacht. And it was absolutely amazing. But no matter how much we did, no matter how much work we could do, we could not take that boat and make it a brand new boat. It was still a beautiful old yacht, but it was still an old yacht. And although we fixed lots of things, there were still problems with it when we were done. You come into our house and you watch TV with Heather and I, pretty quickly you'll see shows like The Restoration Man or This Old House or shows like that where they go and take beautiful old buildings and, and tear the guts out of them and rebuild them and reclaim them for modern use. And you know, in our thinking about the gospel, in our thinking about what the work of God in our lives is like, sometimes we associate the work of God in the life of a human being like taking an old man and restoring him to something like near new. That is not what Jesus came to do at all. He came not to make old people near new. He didn't come to sort of fix us up. All those things we worked on, the old house and the old boat. My dad loves to take old 60s cars and restore them painstakingly. But in every one of those things, there's some inherent value or quality in that item that says it's worth restoring. But here's the thing. In us as sinful humanity, there is nothing worth restoring. There's nothing that can be saved. Nothing that can be rescued. It needs a completely new thing. 
And the story of Lazarus in the tomb as he's lying there, a rotting corpse, is a perfect illustration. It's exactly what it is on a spiritual level, the work that God does in us. I was driving home from here on, I think it was Thursday night, just thinking, how can I get across the idea that Jesus came to make dead people live? And the Spirit of God said, do you ever think about Lazarus? Oh, what a great idea, Lazarus. He perfectly describes what Jesus did. And so what I want to do this morning, you got your note sheets and the, the bullet in there, is go through and line up how Jesus has done it in both a physical sense with Lazarus in a spiritual sense for us as believers in Jesus Christ. So what you're going to have to do is take your Bible, stick your finger in Ephesians and your other finger in John, and we're going to go back and forth as we work our way through the message. If you have an electronic Bible, you're going to have to be really quick with your swipe and scan and pick and choose to get to where you need to. But if you have a paper Bible, you're probably going to come off a little quicker. There is, first of all, a desperate situation. Lazarus is dead. Lazarus is totally insensitive to anything alive. If you go to the John 11 and verse 14, Jesus is talking to the disciples. And what does he say to them plainly? Lazarus is dead. He's been there for four days. One of the sisters says, you know what? By now there's a stench beginning to rise up off that slowly decomposing, rotting corpse. He's dead. Lazarus was insensitive to his sisters as they were weeping and mourning for him back at the house. As they came, the crowd came to that entrance of that tomb and the voices outside and Jesus praying and the people talking about Jesus and Jesus weeping. Lazarus is completely, totally insensitive to everything that's happening out there. He's dead. The Bible tells us in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, that we are dead in trespasses and sins. And what that means is, is we are totally insensitive and unable to comprehend the spiritual realities. We have no true desire or interest in God. We have no desire to please God above all else. We have no desire to glorify God as God Almighty. We had no desire to obey God according to His word. We were absolutely dead and separated from God. Just as surely, just as surely as Lazarus is in the tomb and he is separated by a stone in front of him and by the fact that he is no longer breathing, no longer thinking, no longer alive, he is separated from everything that's going on outside that tomb and at his old home. He's dead. We were dead. Just as surely as Adam and Eve were separated from God by their disobedience and sin, so we too are separated and dead in relation to God. If you do not believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, if you have never repented of sin, if you have no faith in God, then you are separated from God. In fact, excuse me, the word death actually has the idea of separated. We often talk about people who have gone on to be with the Lord, that they are absent from the body and present with the Lord. There's a separation. The spirit goes to be with God. The body goes into the ground. There's a separation there. As soon as man sins against God, what happens? God comes walking in the garden in the cool of the day. He does not come close. No longer does man and God walk together in fellowship and in harmony, God and Adam together. Now there is a great difference, a great separation. All through the Old Testament, the picture given as the the tabernacle and the temple is God in the middle with a great separation of space away from them. There was so much to keep man from getting too close to God. He is separated. He is dead. But the Bible also says that God loves us. God loves you and I for not for any reason of us. It's not like me when I find an old woodworking tool. An old, I love restoring old tools, uh, woodworking planes especially. Find one that's all rusted solid and you take it home and I soak it in thinners and oil and get it all loosened up and I take all the pieces apart and sharpen it all up, put it all back together and use it again. I see something in that plane that says it can be restored, it can be worked on. 
But God didn't. I fall in love with those tools. I know, I'm crazy, whatever. I fall in love with these old woodworking tools. They're beautiful old pieces of equipment. But God didn't put his love on us because there was something in us that says, hey, he's lovable. We hated God. We couldn't stand anything to do with him. We didn't like his word. We would not obey God. We wanted to be separate and pushed away from God because we did not like what God was giving us and telling us. But God still loved us. Look back at John 11 and verse 3. Look what they say. The sisters sent word to him saying, Lord, behold, him whom you love is sick. They didn't even describe him by his name. They just simply described him by Jesus' love for him. The one that you love, he is sick. What do the people say as they watch Jesus? Verse 35 and 36, Jesus weeps. He weeps for the loss of his friend. He weeps in love for Lazarus. I think he also wept knowing that his raising Lazarus from the dead was going to cost him far more than a shout at the outside of a tomb. It was going to cost him his own life hanging on a cross. Jesus wept. And the Jews looked at him and said, See how he loved him. God loved us with a love that's so far beyond explaining. We can only kind of grasp a little of it. I'm going to recap a little bit from last week, but God loved us with His great love. Notice back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4. God's hagape love is expressed by His willingness to sacrifice for the loved one's benefit. The Bible says that God did not display love by giving us everything that we wanted. Sometimes parents think that they're loving their children by giving them everything they want. You're making a tragic mistake if that's what you do. That is not love. God did not love us by giving everything we wanted. Even Jesus coming and healing Lazarus was not the best display of his love for his friend. God loved us with a tremendous love. God loved us by giving us the one person who we could not live without. He could have given us everything we wanted, one after the other. He's God. He's omnipotent. He's almighty. He's all-powerful. He could just say... There it is. Everything Christopher wanted, right there in him. Done. Everything Poovin wanted, poof, right there. Everything Wes wanted, right there. Everything Hannah wanted, in a second, without even twitching a finger or expressing any energy, give us everything we wanted. But that would not be love, because that would just feed our lusts and feed our self-centered desires. So what he did was, he loved us by giving us the one person we could not do without. He gave us the Lord Jesus. God demonstrated his love by, number one, sending Christ into the world so that we might live through him. God demonstrated his love by giving Jesus to die in order to redeem us. He demonstrated his love by Christ dying for us while we were still sinners. i tell you something, as a carpenter who has driven hundreds, if not thousands, probably more, nails with a hammer... Always the thought of Jesus putting his hand out on the cross and the soldiers kneeling on the instep of this part of his arm and placing that great big nail down and driving it down through his wrist and into the wood to know that Jesus gave them the strength, gave them the breath, gave them the mental uh, coordination between nerves and brain and muscles and bones to drive that nail down. He was loving them because he was allowing them to nail him to a cross that he might give them the one thing they could not do without. God demonstrated his love by calling us who have been made alive and trusted him and repented of sin. He called us sons and daughters. Listen. God loves you with his great love. He doesn't love us with the cheap, self-centered love of this world. He loves us with his love. God loves you and he sent Jesus Christ into the world to both tell you of that love and demonstrate that love to you. God loves you and his desire is to call you his son or his daughter. 
No matter how much the human relationships in this world fail, no matter how greatly family and friends, even Christian brothers and sisters, let you down, the love of God will never fail. It's an everlasting love. God loves you and he's extending mercy to you again and again and again. I heard this week about a second person I know who came to know the Lord Jesus Christ not long after a cataclysmic car accident. My friend Troy in Canada, he was, uh, he was dating this Christian girl and they were, she was Christian, he was not and the family had been sharing Christ with him. It was a very awkward, bad situation. And she was living in Calgary, and he was living in Vancouver. And so he got in his car, which was a a very hot, fast car for its time. And he got in it with a couple of his friends, and he went roaring down the highway. He's driving along in the middle of the night, and he fell asleep at the wheel. And his car went rocketing off the road at some horrific rate of speed, and it went right through a telephone pole. The pole was rotted out right in the section where his car went right through it. It just crumbled like tinder. The car flipped over and he went up in the field. They got, ambulance got there, took him to hospital. He was rescued. And they went back a few days later and they found that the, the telephone poles, the one before and the one after, had just been replaced. If he had hit either one, the one before or the one after, he would have been killed instantly. That was God's mercy in his life. God was extending mercy to him. He said, Troy, I'm giving you the gospel. I'm telling you about my son, the Lord Jesus, again and again and again. And he wound up in hospital, and it wasn't long after when he realized the greatness of the love and the grace of God. And he trusted Christ, and today Troy is living his life for the Lord. Uh, Three married kids, I think maybe even a grandchild, or two married kids and a grandchild. It's amazing to see what God has done in this man's life. You know what it is? It's the mercy of God. And God has love and he's extending mercy to you every single day. I was reading again in my Bible yesterday morning. The mercies of God are new every single morning. If you're sitting in this room and you don't know Jesus Christ, let me tell you that God is extending mercy to you every single day. And he is calling and calling and calling you to come. But I have to tell you something else. If you continue to reject God, there will come a day set by God's own purposes when he will simply say, enough. You don't want it. I will not force you. I will instead give you over to what you want. But the consequences of that rejection will fall in a day to come. God loves us. God loved Lazarus. And you know what he did? He intervened in Lazarus' situation. Lazarus was sought out by the Lord Jesus. Look what it says in verse 11 of John 11. Then he said, after that, sorry, verse 11. This he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of his sleep. Notice in verse 38. The Bible says that Jesus came to the tomb where Lazarus was laid. Jesus came to intervene in the course of nature and raise Lazarus from the dead. In John 11:35, Jesus wept over such a desperate situation, but Jesus didn't just weep. He also intervened. It was love in action that he exercised towards Lazarus. And we know back in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4, but God, he intervened in our situation. He reached out to deal with that, to bring us back to himself. Two marvelous words in Ephesians 2 verse 4 that describe a great intervention. God intervened in our situation, our lives, and our world. God has been intervening and invading the world which He created for our dwelling from the very beginning so that we might know Him. We might have our Savior. In Genesis 1, verses 1 and 2, God intervened after He created the heavens and the earth. You know how He did it? He spoke. And God said... Let there be light. Let there be this. Let there be that. Let the earth bring forth. Let the the water bring forth and so on. God was speaking to his creation. That was God's intervention. Genesis 3, God intervened after Adam and Eve had sinned in rebellion against them. How did he do it? 
The Bible says he came to them. He had promised them the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. God had every legal right to strike them dead because of their sin. And even though the Bible, in the, the, in the Hebrew language, the way it describes Jesus, a God coming and walking in the cool of the day, it's a lot more different in the Hebrew. It's a lot stronger. It's the idea of God in a furious rage rushing back and forth in the trees. There's an anger of God, but there's also immense grace. You know why? He keeps at a distance. He doesn't come right into the presence of man and the woman and there in the glory and the holiness of his righteous wrath destroy them. He stays at a distance and he calls out, where are you? God came to them. God called to them from a distance. God dealt with them for their sinful disobedience. God did not, in a false grace, just sweep it under the carpet. You know, you know, Adam and Eve, you know, it was just one fruit. What's the big deal? Don't worry about it, you know. We'll just brush it over this one time. Don't do it again. We'll let it go. No, God dealt with them according to the truth. God judged them for their sin. But God also intervened by providing a permanent covering for their shame. The Bible says their eyes were opened when they ate of the fruit. What's that mean? When their eyes were opened and they saw that they were naked and they were ashamed. It's amazing. You catch a little kid in a sin, right? What's the first thing they do? Well, number one, if they've stolen something, they take their hand, they put it behind their back because they figure that you're not smart enough to figure out that they're just hiding what they've taken. And the second thing they do is the same thing always. They put their head down. They always look at their feet. Why is it? Because shame says, hide your face from the authority. And man and woman run into the trees and they try and cover themselves with fig leaves because they are ashamed of their sin. I was afraid because I was naked and I was ashamed and so I hid. But God dealt with them and he took the skins of an animal and he covered their shame over and set in place a whole Long history of sacrifice to cover the sin of man. Ending and culminating, of course, in the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross to deal with our sin. God intervened in Romans chapter 1 verse 20. The Bible describes how that we might clearly see. I, was just, I read this the other day and it just struck me. I'd never noticed it. You know how you talk about how we have uh, specific revelation in the scriptures? And general revelation is all of creation. And how all of creation declares and describes the glory of the living God. You know what Romans 1 says? Take your Bibles just for a second. We'll detour. It's okay. And we'll go over to Romans 1. I want you to see this. Every once in a while people ask me, young people especially, say, what about the people who have never heard the gospel? How will God deal with them? Well, this is how God deals with them. Look what it says in Romans 1 and verses actually 18 to 20. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them. Listen to this. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, number one, his eternal power, number two, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. God intervened by putting, in, in, in us, into a, putting us into a creation that declares and describes and shouts the glory of God. Even more than that, creation clearly displays the invisible attributes. It clearly displays the eternal power and the divine nature of God. God intervened. He said, I'll put you in a creation that will just tell you all about myself. And you know what? I'm going to go one better than that. I'm going to intervene a bit further. I'm going to give you the written, spoken word of God that will describe in perfect detail all of my love and my grace, your situation, your need of a Savior, and my provision of Christ as the Savior of mankind. Here's something to think about. It's a little chilling. 
Every single time I preach the gospel. Every single time that you open your Bible and in the power of the Holy Spirit you read and strive to understand and put it into effect. Do you realize that you are making yourself that much more accountable? Every single time you listen to a gospel message and reject it and push it away and will have nothing to do with Christ, you are making yourself that much more accountable to God because you are exposing yourself to God's intervention in your life to save you from sin and wrath and hell. And you are saying, no. God will say, you saw it. You saw it again. You heard it. You heard it again. You walked outside and opened your eyes. You see all of my creation. You hear the story again. Every single time that we do that, we expose ourselves to scriptures. We are making ourselves that much more accountable to God for what it says. Before you even think to say it, why don't I shut up and make you less accountable? Because there is also a tremendous reward. Tremendous blessing for being in God's Word and seeing what it says and allowing God, to, by the power of the Spirit of God, to take that Word and change us from the inside out. That's why. But listen, God has intervened. He didn't leave us. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, what's it say? Verse 3, we were by nature children of wrath. What does that mean? We were destined for the wrath of God. If nature had taken its full course, we would stand before God and face the full weight of His wrath. But God, He intervened. He stepped in the way to deal with it. God intervened. God intervened and sought for us because we would not ever seek Him out. The Bible says in Romans 3 verse 14, I believe it is, that none seeks for God. God intervened in our situation to seek us out. How did He do that, you say? Some of us were put into Christian homes. Mom and Dad took us to church and Sunday school and youth group and, and all kinds of Christian events. We were exposed to the gospel again and again. Mom and Dad, who sat down with you and opened the scriptures and read them to you, God was intervening in your life every time Mom and Dad opened the Bible and said, this is what the Bible says, son, daughter. For some of us, God put us sitting beside somebody else at work who knows and loves the Lord Jesus Christ, and they turned around and shared the gospel with us. For some of us, God lifted them up out of Australia, took them all the way to Canada, took them all the way off the coast of British Columbia, put them in a cabin with a guy named Larry Reimer who wouldn't let little kids boss them around and told them the gospel story morning and afternoon and night every chance he got to one little guy trusted Christ. God was intervening. The very fact that God brought you here this morning, you think you're here because you just decided to walk in the back door of a church or someone brought you? That is God's grace and God's intervening in your life to bring you into the sound of the gospel message. He is intervening. Why? Because if you're left to the natural course of events of Ephesians 2 verse 3, you will face the full wrath of God. God is intervening in your life to awaken you to faith in Him. He's intervening to, by bringing you into this church to hear the gospel message. He's intervening. The very fact that you can get an iPhone and you can download a Bible app and you can read the Bible on the way to the train, that's God's intervention in your life. God is intervening. God is not willing. Listen, the Bible says this. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He's calling you. The question is, will you listen? Will you respond? God in magnificent grace is intervening in your life to save you, but will you respond? Notice that Lazarus was made alive by the power of God's spoken word. Look back in John 11. In verse 30, 43, sorry, he says, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. Someone made the observation once that if he hadn't said Lazarus, he just said, come forth. The whole graveyard would have opened, all the graves would have popped open, everybody would have come trucking out. But he defined it, Lazarus, you come forth. And the power of God's spoken word imparted life into Lazarus. 
His brain began to function. His heart began to beat. The blood began to flow through his system. There was a restoration of what had begun to decay and decompose. And Lazarus was made alive. His body became warm. His skin became skin color again. Not that horrible, ghastly pale of death. He was made alive by the power of the spoken word. You say, how does that work? How does God make us alive? The Bible says in Romans 4 verse 17, It is God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. God calls us. I can still remember. I think every believer in the room will put their finger back in time and go, I remember the day. Sitting on a camp bed, I'd push the gospel away again and again and again. And I remember all of a sudden in my heart, there was this, this awakening and I wanted it. I wanted it so bad. I couldn't wait for him to get to the end of his little story. I can't remember the story. All I can remember is him telling us, boys, if you want to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, just pray and ask God to forgive you. I was already praying because I wanted it so bad. Why? Because God had reached down to the heart of a 12-year-old boy and made him alive. Nothing to do with me. All to do with the grace of God. God gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. The call of God through the gospel has the power to impart life to us. The gospel call to us imparts life to us through the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. Ephesians 2 verse 5, but God made us alive together with Christ. What does that mean? What's it mean to be made alive? What's the phrase mean? To answer the question, we have to remember a whole bunch of things the Bible teaches. And they're all very simple because they're all pretty much the same phrases I want you to pick up. So listen, Colossians 2 verse 20, the Bible says, we have died with Christ. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 verse 5, we have been made alive. And literally it's together with Christ. In Colossians 3 verse 1, we have been raised up together with Christ. Notice in all those verses the phrase with Christ. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17, it's my favorite verse for kids at camp. If anyone is in Christ. He is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Galatians 2 verse 20, one of the verses I memorized as a little kid, I first came to know the Lord, I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who gave me and gave himself for me. It's all about identity and being fastened and joined together with Christ. Being made alive, salvation means this. It's identification with Christ. It's union with Christ. Being in Christ. We are reconciled to God and to Christ. We are fastened together. Remember I gave you the illustration about redemption? I said redemption is like taking two boards, two pieces of timber that are fastened together with a massive iron nail. You take a pry bar or a, a nail puller, if you have those over here, and drive it in between those two pieces of wood or like a big wedge, and you pry them apart. It takes a tremendous amount of force to pull those pieces of timber apart with a nail that drives them together. Well, this is the exact opposite. When we're saved, we are fastened together. We're combined tightly with Christ. We are in Christ, and He is in us. So the Bible says... 1 Corinthians, you say, well, how does that happen? How are we fastened together with Christ? 1 Corinthians 1, verses 30 to 31 say this. It's by God's doing, or better, God's working, that we are in Christ Jesus. It is God's work to fasten and join us and unite us together with Christ. You say, why is that? Well, it's like this. When Christ died, we who are fastened with Christ, died with him. So it's almost like as he was nailed to the cross, my body was, if you like, inside his, and his nails, his hands being nailed down, and my hands being nailed down, the same thing. Because I'm identified with him. As he died, I died with him. 
As he was put in a tomb, I was put in a tomb with him and buried with Christ. As he was raised from the dead, it's like I was raised up with him. There's a great Old Testament illustration of this. Who loves the story of uh, David and Goliath? I see some smiles. Uh, if you like veggie tales, it was Dave and the giant pickle. Right? We always got to laugh out of that, the old veggie tales story. The story of David and Goliath is a tremendous story in Old Testament history because what it is is it's an illustration of something called uh, champion or soul combat, representative combat. So imagine that this side is warring with this side, right? And so rather than everybody on both sides getting up out of their chairs and running together and duking it all out and everybody get all beat up and bloody and, and hurt and bruised, what we do is we pick two champions. So we'll pick Poovin on this side and we'll pick Porchek on that side. And everybody will watch as Poovin and Porchek come together and they'll duke it out. They'll get all bloody and bruised and beaten and we won't, which is always a good thing. And we'll watch them as they fight it out. At the end of the day, if Poovin beats Porchek, everyone decides, cheers, yeah, we won. But wait a minute. Poovin did all the fighting. Poovin got all the bruises and battering and beating. But we won, right? Because Poovin was our champion. Or on this side, the vice versa. Porchek wins. And yeah, we won because Porchek won. And the idea is, is as Porchek and Poovin are fighting each other, they are fighting representatively. So Goliath comes down out from the ranks of the Philistines, this great big nine-foot-tall dude with a big iron spear and great big uh, shield with some poor guy. Can you imagine being the shield carrier for Goliath? He's nine feet tall, and you're like five, six at a good day. And he's got to carry his shield, and he's got the big armor behind him, the big spear. And he comes down, and he stands on one side, and the, and the, the Israelites are all looking over the valley going, that's a really big guy. You know, who's the tallest guy in the whole Israelite army? Saul. What's he doing? He's sitting down inside his tent. Why is he sitting down, do you think? So no one will notice how tall he is as opposed to everybody else who's short. And the idea is they get one champion from each side and they come together. And the way that worked was rather than everybody getting killed was that as the fought together, whoever won that fort, the defeated army would lay down their arms and the winning army would conquer. But only one guy got killed. It was a really economical way to do battle, right? But that's exactly what it is with Christ and us. He has gone into battle, if you will. Not that there was any doubt about who was going to win. And he has suffered on the cross and he has triumphed and conquered over sin and death and hell and the grave. And we who are in Christ, we who have identified ourselves with Christ are on the winning side, if you like. This is a bad way to tell the gospel, but you're on the winning side. Because we are identifying with our champion and we say he has fought for us. So when the Bible says that God made us alive together with Christ, what he means is as Christ represented us and he suffered for us, it was as if we suffered with him. And as he was nailed to the cross, it was as if we were nailed there right alongside of him. And as he went to the tomb, we went in with him. And as he was raised up and given new life, it's like we were raised up with him and we had that same new life that he has. We have identified ourselves with Christ. We were spiritually... Remember Lazarus? Sorry, in the tomb. He's in the tomb. He's dead. Christ calls to Lazarus with his human audible voice. Lazarus. And Lazarus is, in, is dead. He's insensitive to all of life. And we who are spiritually dead are insensitive to all of God and all of the true spiritual realities. But when the gospel is preached, in the process of that gospel call, God works a miracle in the life of every single believer and he makes them alive. Just as blood flowed through Lazarus' body and his brain began to function and the brain function that works or controls his hearing all of a sudden was able to hear and he can hear the voice of Jesus saying, Lazarus, come forth. He's made alive. He can hear the message of Jesus standing outside the tomb. And what does he do? 
He sits up in the tomb, swings his legs off the little stone bench, and he stands up in that tomb, and he comes walking out. I think he would have been walking like this because he would be all wrapped up. But he came out. But it took a work of God in that man's life to first make him alive to hear the gospel so that he can hear it and he can believe with his heart and he can obey with his feet, feet, hands and mouth and everything else. The very proof of Lazarus being made alive, what was it? Because blood started flowing? That would have been a very awkward moment. As they're standing there, Lazarus, come forth. Nothing happens. And then he's inside the tomb, sitting up, looking around, thinking, this is not so bad. It's kind of cool and quiet in here. I'll just stay here. No, he had to get up and put his feet off the edge of the bed, and he had to walk out. The proof of the reality of his being made alive in that moment was the fact that he responded in faith and obedience to the call of Jesus. He responded and walked out of the tomb to be and stand beside Jesus. And I can imagine that moment as they began to unwrap all the wrappings off him and untie the thing that held his jaw shut and loosened him up. I can tell you right now who he's looking at. He's looking right at Jesus. And the one whom Jesus loved is now responding in love, now sees the one who has made him alive. Faith and obedience and being awakened have all come together. You say, how does it happen? 1 Peter 1.23 says this, God caused us to be born again through the living and enduring Word of God. God makes us alive through the preaching or the communication of the gospel. Whether you share it with a friend sitting on a train, whether you share it with a neighbor over the back fence, whether you share it around a cup of coffee. I know some of us get people over in their houses for a cup of coffee and share the gospel with them. Whether someone calls you over and says, let me tell you the great story of the gospel. However the gospel is communicated, whether it's preaching like this over a pulpit, standing on a street corner, or quietly sharing with a friend in a room, when the gospel is communicated, God does a miracle in a man's or a woman's heart, and he makes them alive so they can hear the message and they can respond in faith and obedience. God makes us spiritually alive so we can respond. Lazarus was made alive by the power of God. Lazarus heard Jesus call to come forth and Lazarus obeyed. God makes us alive. God regenerates us so that we can hear the gospel call and respond to it. He responded in faithful obedience. He came up out of the tomb. As I sat through this preparing this yesterday, I thought, yeah, I could just talk all about the gospel call and move on and finish the sermon. And the Spirit of God laid on my heart. He said, no, you can't do that. You need to tell them what the gospel message is. And it's my prayer this morning that God will take one person in this room and make them alive. A miracle of God's grace and God's omnipotent power so that they can respond in faith and obedience. This is the gospel call. We are sinners against God, living spiritually dead in sin. Every sin we commit is an offense against God. As surely as we walked up to God and slapped Him in the face, our sin offends God. Every sin we commit is worthy of the condemnation of death. Adam and Eve ate one piece of fruit one time, and it was enough for them to be spiritually dead. We are utterly uninterested in God and will not and cannot make any effort to come to God on our own. But God in wonderful grace, wonderful grace of Jesus, greater than all my sin. How shall my tongue describe it? Where shall its praise begin? Grace of God that is greater than all my sin. Another hymn writer wrote like this. He said, My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. It is well with my soul. My sin, not in part, but the whole. 
We were spiritually dead in sin and we were utterly uninterested. We could not, we would not come to God, but God in wonderful grace intervened. He sent his son Jesus into the world. He gave his son in the hands of sinful men who cruelly, maliciously tortured him and crucified him. By the way, they did not kill him. Nobody could kill Jesus. He said in John 10, no man takes my life from me. I lay it down of myself. He died on the cross by pushing down the nails in his hands and feet and getting up so he could breathe properly, take a great big lung full of air. And he shouted, it's finished. And he commended his spirit to go be with his father. You know how you die on a cross? You die by suffocation as you get so weak and so much blood loss, you can no longer push down the nails to relieve the tension so you can breathe in and out. So everything Jesus did as he died declared to everybody watching he died because he chose to, not because he bled to death, not because he suffocated. He died because he said, be with the Father and commended his spirit to God. They didn't kill him on a cross. He gave his life on a cross. God intervened and Jesus gave up his life voluntarily. But God intervened on our behalf and he raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus' death paid our penalty of death for us, for our sin, for your sin and for mine. Jesus' resurrection was so that we could be new creatures in Christ. I can't wait till we get back to Ephesians in about three weeks' time and talk about the new life. What it means to live in newness of life. I love the story of Lazarus. You know how it ends? He's sitting around a table or lying at a table with Jesus. And there is fellowship and communion between Lazarus and the Lord. There's a great rejoining there. There's a tremendous fellowship. And we have that privilege to be in fellowship with God. But you know what? His resurrection enabled us to live that new life, to walk as new creatures in Christ. And the Bible says this, listen. God commands all men everywhere to repent. That is the message of the gospel. Trust the Lord Jesus Christ to be your Savior. Trust Him to keep His promises. Repent of sin. Turn around. Walk away. Don't have anything more to do with it. And you will know that you've been saved. You say, well, you know what? How can I know for sure? How can I truly know? Maybe someone here this morning is struggling, not really knowing for sure if they're saved or not. Has God really done a work in my life? Is all of this just religious activity or is there really new life inside of me? Well, I want to give you quickly how you can know. We can know for sure that God has made us alive. There comes in us the desire for the things of God. I hated reading my Bible before I came to know the Lord. Uh, my dad made me take an old Darby translation Bible. Some of you know a Darby translation. It's like the King James. It's very awkward. And if you're a young Aussie kid and living in Canada, it is really awkward. I took this thing up to camp with me. And I came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, there was a craving. Couldn't explain it. I wanted to know more. I started reading and reading and reading. A little later on, I got given an NIV Bible. I just read the thing so much, it just fell apart one day. It wouldn't hold up. There's a craving inside of our hearts to know God, to be in His Word. Why? Because it's like reading a love letter from my most loved person. There's a desire in us. We seek the things above where Christ is. We set our minds on the things above where Christ is. We actively strive to put off the old sinful man, the old habits, the old ingrained ways of living, we push them away so we can be more like Christ. That's how you know. It's like a little baby. Babies are born. I use this illustration all the time because it's so perfect. A little baby's born, and within minutes, what's it doing? It's screaming. What's it screaming for? Food, usually, right? And you fill it full of milk, and, and then it's all happy again. Then it burps, and then it... And other things, and then it, it gets sleeps, and then it wants more food. And a baby just is craving for it. And a baby will keep eating as much as you'll give it, as much as it can choke down, because it's craving for that life-giving food. A Christian is exactly the same. How do you know I'm you saved? Is there a craving in your life for the Word of God to be with people who know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is there a craving in your life 
to be like Christ. To spend time with Him. To follow where He leads. To walk the way He walks. To live as He lived. It's one of the ways we know that we have truly come to be born again. To know the Lord Jesus Christ. To have been made alive by God. But listen. Just being made alive is not the sum total of our salvation. There is, like I said a minute ago, a piece that wants to just dive into the next bit and talk about the newness of life. We have been raised again not to live just like we were. I see it in church buildings occasionally. Come as you are. That's great. I agree. Come as you are. Leave different, by the way. Don't come as you are and stay as you are and leave exactly the same way. Come as you are. And the work of the Spirit of God ought to be changing us. There ought to be a new way of living. In fact, what he's going to talk about in Ephesians 2 and 3 and more is about how you used to live like this. Now you should be living like that. There's a new life in you. Brothers and sisters in Christ, let me ask you. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, are you living the way you used to live? Or are you living the new life in Christ? Are you living striving to know more of Jesus? I was reading a story of uh, Hudson Taylor the last couple of days and just marveling. This missionary in, over in China, he had a craving in his heart to know more of God, to live more like Christ, and to be more like Christ. But as we close and we wrap up for the morning, let me ask you this. What's your response? In a sense, as if God is standing like Jesus outside of a tomb and you're in it. And he's calling your name. I won't call anybody's name. I'll I'll use generic names. Betty. He's calling Bobby. He's calling Billy. Mikey, Johnny, who, whatever your name is, he's calling your name. If you hear that call, and like I did when I was a young kid, you feel that incredible drawing in your heart that you had to have Christ. You had to be saved. You had to know what it was to be forgiven. Then I urge you with all my heart this morning, follow the Lord. Trust Christ for salvation. Repent of your sin. Put away that sin that's snaring you. And tripping you up, put it away, turn around and follow Christ. And you know what it has to have new life. You know what it is to walk out of a tomb and to be face to face with the living God, as it were. Does that make sense? Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to pray. And then we're going to sing the benediction. We'll probably sing it a cappella just to make it easy again. Let's stand together and pray. Loving Father, this morning we give you thanks again for the Lord Jesus Christ. And Father, we thank you that as he stood outside of Lazarus's tomb, he shouted, Lazarus, come forth. And Father, I give you thanks for that day in July 1982 when you stood outside the tomb, my tomb, and shouted my name to come forth. And I heard and responded. Father, for every Christian in this room, every single man and woman and child who remembers the day when they heard the call of the gospel, they felt the Lord Jesus Christ calling their names and responded, Father, I worship you and I give you thanks. I lift up my heart to you and praise, O God, for the tremendous work you have done, the great work of grace and power to make dead people alive. And Father, at the very same time, I cry out to you, O God, that for the one person in this room that has never trusted the Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, this morning, you would call their name, make them alive. Father, they would hear the call and respond. Father God, it is my desire to see a revival in this church. It begins with men and women coming to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It begins with believers falling in love again with their Savior. 
Oh God, I pray that we would never take our salvation for granted. That, Father, it would always be a thing of wonder and amazement and joy that we have come to know the living God. That we know what it is, O oh God, to have sins forgiven and a home in heaven. Father God, I plead with you to do a work in all of our hearts. Father, for those who have let their salvation become something of a historic moment, a thing in the past, Father, I pray that you would impress upon their hearts deeply the reality of what it means to be forgiven. That they would turn again and see the loveliness of the Lord Jesus Christ, their Savior. That, Father, they would fall on their faces and worship the living God in love for you and a love for him. Father, I ask you for your blessing. We ask you, O oh God, for your blessing on this church. And we give you thanks, Father, for our time this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.